All right, um, if you've not been here for the last four or five weeks, you've missed uh, a doozy of weeks uh, in regards to what we've been talking about. We're coming out of a series we were entitled Bruised Read, where we looked at a number of deeply painful and difficult topics, and um, it was emotional. <laughs> it was weighty, and it was heavy. And uh, what we are dealing with and we're going to go to today is, is, is certainly significant and important, but we want, I, might, well, I just want to say what we're going to go back to for two weeks is we're going to go back to some basics. We, we have been diving into what we might call, call the weeds of life in regards to looking at things like pornography and sexual abuse and infertility and depression. And we're going to kind of take a, a broader look now. We're going to take these next two weeks to look at something that's very important, which is how you respond to the gospel. When, when, when the good news of Jesus comes to you, when you're confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ, what is to be our response? And the consistent theme of the New Testament is two words. Two words. First, repent, and the second is belief. So for the next two weeks, it's just kind of a bridge the gap here before we start jumping to the book of Ecclesiastes in a couple weeks. We're going to look at these two topics for two weeks. First this week, repentance. Then we're next week, we're going to look at belief or faith. So repent and believe. To help us look at repentance this morning, we're going to turn to perhaps the most well-known passage um, display of repentance in all the Bible. We're going to turn our Bibles to chapter 51 of Psalms. Psalm chapter 51. It's written by David. I'm going to read it out loud as you follow along in your Bible. Hear this great cry of the king in response to his own sin. Here's, here's Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And this is the context. This is actually part of God's word. This is like preamble. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And here's what David said. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret parts. Secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Te let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me. With a willing spirit. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and inflammable word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. The writer of the psalm is David. David, and here's the context. It says it there at the preamble of the psalm. The context is this that David, his, his armies go off to war, and David stays home. There's a man who's off at war with David's uh, armies a leader of his men. In fact, we see in other passages that a man named Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Uriah goes off to war, but of course his wife stays back in town. And David sees her from a window one day and he longs for her. He wanted her. And so he summons her. 
He uses his power as a king and his authority to call her and beckon her, and he sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. That wasn't supposed to happen. And so, oh boy, we have some problems. David's like, it's okay. It's all good. I know how to deal with these things. I am a king, by the way. And so he calls for a cover-up. He calls Uriah home. He says, Uriah, come back. Report on what's going on. He calls Uriah to meet with him. And then he says, Uriah, you're home. Why don't you go and be with your family for a little bit before you go and rejoin the armies at battle? But Uriah is a man of great integrity and honor. And he says, I will not go home and enjoy these things if my men don't get to enjoy them as well. And so I will not go home. And so instead, he sleeps on the ground outside. So that's a problem. That plan doesn't work. The cover-up is a fail. So David must go to a darker place. So in order to deal with Uriah, he sends him back to the battle and to the army with a note, his own death warrant. He sends a note with Uriah saying to the generals of the army, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send Uriah to the front of the battle up near the walls at the fiercest part of the fighting. And then when Uriah is out there extending himself and he's least protected, I want you to withdraw the other men around him. And that's what happens. They obey David, his yes men. They withdraw from Uriah, and Uriah is killed in battle, the national hero. He comes back, and David does all the, carries out all the pomp and circumstance, right? A national hero's funeral, and he grieves with Bathsheba, and then he does the loving thing. Here it is, one of his great and mighty men, his, her, her husband has died, and so he brings her in and marries her and makes Bathsheba his wife, cover up complete. They now await the child that she's going to have, and David is carrying on as if he is a man of faith and integrity and love, until one day a man named Nathan shows up and says, King, we got a problem. There's a problem in this country, and he shares with David a story of grave injustice. And he shares this little parable. He says, there was a family out in the countryside and it was this this poor family and they had one little sheep, one little lamb. They loved this sheep like a pet. They would sleep with the sheep. They would care for the sheep. It was part of their family. And next door to them was a wealthy man who had many sheep, hundreds of goats and herds. And that man had had someone come to his house. He wanted to throw a party and he wanted to, to feed this man some meat. And so he, instead of taking one of his sheep, one from his mighty herds, he instead goes and steals the little sheep from this family and he slaughters it so that he might feed his family for his party. And Nathan, or David rises up and he goes, this, this must be dealt with. This must not happen in a king in which I am the country. And Nathan then looks at him and goes, you, you are the man. You did this. Can you imagine how David felt in that moment? The crushing, all the blood must have just drained from his face. His fingers may have grown tingly, may have grown dizzy from the sense of guilt, the crushing wave that came crashing down upon him. How do you recover from that when you sense this level of sin in your life? What do you do when you look at yourself and you realize that what is inside you You see it in your behavior, maybe in how you thought about somebody, that you realize inside of you is a monster, a monster. I was talking through a particular failure of mine, an aspect of my character that had been displayed over and over and over again in my life that was not good, 
And I was talking about this aspect of my character with my counsel this past summer during my sabbatical. And he said something that struck me. It struck me because of how poignantly it reflected on who I am in this particular aspect of my life. He said this, you're being forced to reckon with the you that is a monster. A monster. David is forced to face the monster that lives inside of him and that life circumstances, for whatever reason, that it's finally come out. And he gives voice to his response. He writes down what he has done, what he thinks, and what he needs. And it's interesting. God takes David's reflections at this moment, his response to being convicted and being confronted by his sin, and God places it in his word. Now, why would God do that? Why would God take this incredibly personally profound aspect of confession and display it for all of us to see? It's so that when you realize that you are a monster, that you can know that monsters are welcome home. That there is a way home and that for you, even for you, there is salvation. You see, this is what God is constantly doing in his word. There are men like Paul who slaughter Christians, but Paul can come home and can be healed. There's the younger you, the one that, that got your girlfriend pregnant and then forced her to have an abortion. That you can be forgiven. That person who thinks awful things about your very own parents and frankly wishes they would die. That aspect, those thoughts in you, that monster inside of you, that person can come home. And we need to know how. Or perhaps for you, you might be sitting here going, these seem like way bigger sins than I've experienced. <laughs> well, perhaps for you, maybe you don't have some grand sin, sin in your life that you're looking at, but you have the, the, the palatable sense that if, if, if I were to, give, to say this, hey, someone is looking through the keyhole in your life and they're watching everything about what you think and you do, when you consider that, there is a gnawing and an, an annoyance and an, something inside of you goes, oh no, they can see too. That voice, when you realize that about yourself, you need to know how to come home. And that path home is called repentance. Let's look at it this morning. We're going to look at repentance first is the beginning of true repentance. The beginning of true repentance. Where does David begin? The starting place of true repentance can either be, our, be seen, see our sin in view of the character of God, or the starting place can be us viewing our sin in view of what we actually, our vision for ourselves. You can view your sin in view of God and who he is, or in view of your vision of your perfected self. In other words, true repentance can begin with God, or false repentance can begin with the self. Psalm chapter 51 verse 1 says this. He begins his repentance this way. Have mercy on me, O God. How? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. True repentance is born and begins with throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus. False repentance is born of a desire to clean yourself up first. True repentance looks to God first. True invitation, the invitation of, true, of God to true repentance is not one that begins with self-reform, but with the mercy of God. That's where it must begin. True repentance is initiated by the mercy of God. It is his invitation it's saying it is safe to come out of hiding. It is safe to kind of finally admit that you're as bad as you feared you are. We will not truly repent and we will not truly confess until we see that it is safe 
to do so before this God? Does your God and your view of who, view of who God is woo you into repentance? Is it safe? This makes me think of one of the, a story that I've, I've always loved. I've shared it here before by a pastor named John Ortberg. I'm going to read it to you because it's a wonderful illustration of what it looks like to not be safe and why we don't confess. He says this, when our children were very little, we decided that we needed some new furniture. And so we traded in my old Volkswagen Beetle for a brand new sofa. Now, the sofa was the color mauve. Really, the sofa was the color of Pepto-Bismol, but mauve sounded better. When we, brought, we bought the sofa, the salesman tried to talk us out of it when he found out we had small children. He said, we need a sofa that looked more like dirt. But we had the naive optimism that of young parents that we could control our kids. Well, from that moment on, the number one rule in our house was don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on it. Don't breathe on it. Don't look at it or even think about the mauve sofa. Like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, the saying could have been said, gone this way, of all the furniture in the house, you may freely sit. But on the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For on the day you sit on the mauve sofa, you shall surely die. <laughs> and then came the day of the great fall. One day there appeared on the sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the sofa and adored the sofa and loved the sofa, lined up all the children, Laura, age four, Mallory, age two and a half, and even little Johnny at six months was plopped down in the row. And she said, do you see that stain, that red stain, that red jelly stain, children? The man at the furniture store says that stain is never going to come out. It's going to remain there forever. Do you know how long forever is? Well, forever is how long you're going to stand here and you're going to wait until someone tells me who put that dread jelly stain on this sofa. Well, Mallory was the first to break, the two-and-a-half-year-old. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, Mallory said, Laura did it. Laura quickly denied it. And then there was a long, long silence. Ortberg said this, I knew they wouldn't confess, for they had never seen their mother so mad. I knew they wouldn't confess because they knew they would spend eternity in timeouts. And I also knew they wouldn't confess because I was the one who had put the red jelly stain <laughs> on the mob sofa, and I wasn't ever going to say anything. <laughs> What's the point? Who's going to confess when mom is red-faced and steam is coming out of her ears? And who's going to confess to a God who's going to blast you? Who's going to crush you? What makes it safe to repent, to truly repent, to truly bear all of who you are? It's when you realize that your God is merciful and that he is steadfast in love and that your sins, he already knew you were as bad as you've just finally realized you are. And his steadfast love has always been there and it is not going anywhere. True repentance is formed by a high view of God, not by a low view of yourself. A high view of God and his mercy and his loving character, whereas this false repentance is formed on the basis of a high view of ourselves and what we want for ourselves. One writer put it this way, worldly repentance is the sadness that we have failed to act out our heroic vision for ourselves. That's worldly repentance. We address this by trying harder. This is not a returning to God, but a recommitment to that greater vision we had for ourselves. It is not a new self or even a real self. It's a greater commitment to the false self that we have set up. False repentance looks like a self-reform project. 
False repentance involves ignoring our sin by not directing this, ignore, by directing and addressing the specifics of it or the consequences of it in the way we have hurt those around us and destroyed our lives. False repentance uses the language, therapeutic languages of I'm working on my stuff and I am trying to heal. That's false repentance. It's a lie, it's gross, and it's manipulative before God. Such an approach is simply hoping to exude a better version of you or a new version of you that you have formed in the lab. False and true repentance, though, a particularly conniving person may be able to take the steps of things to looks like it's the way of repentance, but ultimately, ultimately, it's about them and not about God. It is freedom, and it is not built on the freedom that they have in the finished work of Jesus, but it's actually built on how they can perform better. Here's the conclusion to this. Mercy, mercy, mercy. It is the sole basis upon which sinners can come home. And if you do not begin here, the path will deviate, will deviate at some point. And all of your outward expressions of repentance will eventually be shown to be nothing more than self-public self-reform projects. But God loves it. He loves it when we cry out for mercy. One pastor put it this way, there is no shark in the ocean who is more attracted to blood than God is to the cries of his people when they ask for mercy. Is this the beginning of your repentance? The mercy of God. Second, the perspective of true repentance. True repentance involves a new eyes upon a new view of your sin. The way of true repentance sees your sin as God sees it. The word for confess here literally means seeing things from the perspective of the one wronged. That's what it means. Repentance is, is beginning to see sin the way God sees it. And here's the process and here's the change as we look at how the psalmist now views his sin as the way God sees it. Here, we're going to run through about five, five fr- phrases in the passage. First, true repentance sees sin as our own, as our own. True repentance is, sees sin as my responsibility. Verse 1, 2, and 3, what's he say? Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David doesn't make excuses. There is no explaining it away. There is no qualifying. There are no yeah buts. And there is no downplaying of his sin. This is different than our approach. We apologize, don't we? And then have you ever been in a relationship where they come, somebody comes to you and they apologize to you and you're just waiting for it, but you, but you, but you. We blame it perhaps after the last couple of weeks, you know, some people's responses to their life and their failed repentance is, oh, my traumas, the things that happened to me in the past. True repentance is not blaming it upon the context of our sin, but is looking at the heart of our sin. You ever been in a marriage counseling with your spouse? What do you become rather rapidly in a fight with your spouse? You never went to law school, but you show up with a legal brief. Boom! I would like to discuss the following matters. See, but true hope in a marriage is when somebody says, somebody in that marriage says, I am convinced that this marriage, there's a problem, and I believe it begins with my selfishness. Mine. It's mine. I own my sin. Second, 
David shows us the true repentance sees sin as relational treachery against God. It's ultimately against God. What's he say? Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David says, I have sinned against God. It's interesting. You want to you be like, if Uriah's in the corner, he's like raising his hand and going, um, excuse me, murdered guy over here who, st- and, you know, you stole my wife and had me killed. Yes, and we do need to repent to other people and confess to other people. But ultimately, what we must see is that all sin is first and foremost a, a treachery against God who made Uriah, who made Bathsheba. All sin is first and foremost the breaking of the first commandment. That you shall have no other gods before me. And all other sins, like murder and do not commit adultery, they flow from breaking the first commandment. It is the choice that I want something else more than I want God. It is a breaking of God's commandments. And therefore, sin, sin is ultimately adultery against God. This is the image that comes up time and time again in the Old Testament. That Israel's sin, that our personal sin, is an act of adulterous betrayal to God. This is why we have the book of Hosea. God gives us this character, Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to go marry the village whore. And he goes, I'm sorry, what? That's not what good Jewish boys do. Why would you want me to do that? And God's answer is this, because I want my people to see what it's like to be married to them. We have spurned our father and our lover, and we have spurned the one who has created us and formed us. Sin is ultimately thumbing our nose at God, and it is deeply, deeply, deeply personal. Third, true repentance sees sin as evil. Evil. True repentance, in other words, calls sin, sin. It is not downplaying, it is not blame shifting, it is not calling what you did a mistake or a momentary failing. Evil. We don't even like to use the word sin in our in our world. We might say I'm fallen, that's a good biblical word. We prefer broken these days, don't we? And we just walk through a whole series, look at brokenness. So we're not against that. We are broken by the fall. But what we must actually acknowledge is that we are full of sin. And what we have done is evil. It's evil. This is where what my, what my counselor said to me this past summer was so profound because he wasn't calling this aspect of my character as like a small failing or something that I needed to tweak. It was something monstrous inside of me that was being displayed. The confession of your sin must involve a sense of the gravity of your sin, that your adultery against God is an evil act. There is a wretchedness to it, a wretchedness to it. Now, I believe, I believe this is apocryphal, but they used it in the, uh, the, the, the movie Amazing Grace. If you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, it's the story of William Wilberforce and his, his seeking to end or eradicate the slave trade in, the, in, the, in England and the British colonies. And at one particular point in the movie, in order to try to gain support for his, his legislation in Parliament, he, he throws a party where Parliament is out there with them and their wives and they have this great shindig and they're on this boat out and he has the boat go out and park right next to a slave ship that just returned to port. And the smell is so disgusting that the people begin to retch. And they're covering their mouths with their clothes and Wilberforce says, says this to them, take your scars off your faces and breathe in the stench of your sin. This boat just dropped off 200 men, women, and children in Jamaica, but it left Africa with 600 men, women, and children. Smell your sin. This is what the prophet Nathan did to David. You are the man. And what you have done is evil. 
And it was crushing and it was painful, but it is the mercy of God to be awoken to the true evil of your sin and your sinfulness. So fourth, true repentance sees sin as deserving of consequences or deserving of judgment. What does he say in verse 4? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There is an aspect even for Christians in which we go, yes, yes, my sin deserves some sort of discipline. But when we come to the concept of something like hell, we go, does it really deserve that much discipline? Does it really deserve that level of judgment? And this is where the true question of, but what about the context, Jesus? What about all the things that were going on around me that led to, were the context of my sin? Repentant people, again, they don't push off their sinfulness. They see the full weight of it. And part of the full weight of it is seeing the consequences of it, both in the lives of other people, but in the consequences of what their sin deserves. There's a great example of this and why it's so important in repentance and how it displays true faith in what Jesus has done for us. The other thief on the cross. You know, Jesus is on the cross and there's two thieves and one mocks Jesus. And what is the response that Jesus looks at and says, that man has saving faith, is that the other thief on the cross says, we deserve this. He does not. This is what our sins deserved. Have you come to a place where you recognize the full consequences of what your sins deserve? Last and finally, true repentance sees sin as a result of our sinfulness. Sin is not just something we do, it's something we are. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he is saying, it's not that once I was born and I was, fallen, I was born in this broken world, and things didn't go quite right, and I endured these traumas, that then I began to sin. No. It's saying from his very nature, from the moment of his conception, there was something flawed about his identity and his being. We do foolish things because we are fools. We are not innately good. We are screwed up. We sin because we desire to sin. We like it. We like the sin even for itself, even if it doesn't even give us any kind of fleshly goodies. St. Augustine has got this great illustration from his own book he called Confessions. And he describes one time in his life where he's describing his sinfulness as a young man. He says, I once left over a fence to steal pears, but I wasn't even hungry. And in fact, I hated pears. So there was no practical need and there was no urge of the flesh to say, I must have a pear. He concluded that there was something inside of him that liked to break the rules. And so it is with us. We desire sin because we are sinners. For David, his sin is not an aberration. It is who he is. And the same goes for us. I've enjoyed a, a show last, a couple years ago called Broad Church. Anybody, I don't know if anybody's watched Broad Church. It's a BBC uh, detective show based in a small little English town. And everybody in the English town, it's a quite a quaint place. It's on a uh, a seaside town, and everyone knows each other, and everything is great in this town, and so one day a little boy shows up murdered, and the question is, who did it? And the local police woman is named Ellie Miller, and she is convinced that no one in the town is capable of this deed. She looks into them, and she always finds reasons to say, no, they wouldn't have done this. She thinks she knows everybody. In order to get to the bottom of it, though, she finally calls in an inspector from out of town, and she tells him, I know these people. They are not capable of doing this. And this inspector who comes out of town, his name is Hardy, and he says, anyone is capable in the right circumstances. Anyone in this town is capable of this. 
And Miller says, no, I believe the people of this town have a moral compass. And Hardy responds, moral compasses tend to break. And the reality is, is your moral compass came broken. It did not come right. Do you know that? That the seed of sin is in your heart. So people, when they do something stupid, (laughs) we shouldn't say, I can't believe I did that. What we should say is, that's not a shocker. That seems correct. You must know you must not know yourself very well if you go, ah, ah, that is out of a line with who I am. You know what one of the things that people say when they see racist acts, this is not who we are. I'm sorry. History, all of human history says that is exactly who we are, right? God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It is waiting for you to crack the door, and it seeks to dominate you. you. Coming clean means we take responsibility, and we bear the full depth of the problem that we are not simply people who do something wrong. There is something wrong with us. So repentance involves seeing sin as God sees it. We will also begin to see the salvation, though, that we need, right? If it's sin is not something I do, it's something that I am. If sin is something that is against God, that it breaks relationship with God, that it has consequences in my life, that I need, I need something more profound than a self-reform project. I need something more profound than a, you know, go in, my life needs more than a, a fresh paint job and to move the furniture around. And then here we see, lastly then, the longings of true repentance. Because the longings of true repentance make us long for a greater salvation than simply self-reform projects. Here we'll look at verses 7 through 12 to close this this morning. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. David's true repentance, a true view of your sin, gives you a high view of what salvation is. What does he need? Well, very briefly, we'll run through it very quickly. What does he see that he needs? First, he needs a new life and a new record, right? A new life and a new record. Purge. You know what purge? He says, purge me. Purge me. It means to me, literally what the word means is to be descend. Descend. If you read history books, this is not something we would think of commonly now, but maybe if you live in certain parts of the third world, you would heard the term deloused. It's where you have lice crawling all over your body. And you desperately need, and you are desperate for it, for someone to throw anything on you that would actually get rid of the creeping and the crawling and the itching on your body. And that is what he's saying. I need something. I need to be descend. I need a washing. You know, give me lighter fluid and light me on fire for crying out loud. If you ever itch that bad, David is saying, descend me, de-lie me, de-adultery me, de-murder me, de-cheat me. Remove these things from my... Then he says, wash me, wash me. I have a scarlet A on my forehead. It has been burned into my scalp and I need you to wash me so that my sins that were as crimson now become whiter than snow. Make me clean. And then lastly, he says, blot out. This refers to removing from a book, right? This is the whiteout. 
This is perhaps removing an indictment that before the law, it has been stamped guilty in all of my actions and I need you to wash that page clean. That's not all he asked for. Don't simply give me a new record and a new life without all these sins. I also need a new heart, a new heart, a clean heart. Take this heart that desires sin. I don't simply need to act differently. I need to want differently. Take this heart of stone and fill it with make me have a heart of flesh, something new so that I want God. Don't simply make little tweaks in my life. Come in and do a full remodel and renovation of my soul. A new me. And lastly, you long for a new relationship with God. God, I long to be with you again. Do you hear it? Don't hide your, don't, don't run from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's you I need. It's you I want. If you're somebody who in your sinfulness and you realize the full evil, perhaps what you've done to a child or to a spouse or to a good friend, what do you long for? I long to be restored to them. That is the full nth of the degree of what I want for in my repentance. I want you. I want you, God. I've shared this illustration before, but it's so poignant as to how desperately we want this restoration. If you have true repentance, this is what you want. Hemingway writes a story in his book, The Capital of the World, where he talks about a father and a son who'd become estranged. And the father seeks to find his son. It's set in Madrid in Spain. And his son's name is Paco in Spain. There's a lot of those. And so he takes out an ad and he says, Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me tomorrow at noon. And the account that Hemingway gives, he says that there were 800 men who met him at the newspaper stand at noon because there was a longing inside of our heart that says the greatest desire is to be restored to the Father and that is what true repentance brings us to, restoration. Restoration. Restoration with the one we've sinned against. But what brings about that restoration? What makes it all possible? What does David say? Purge me with hyssop? What? Like, what, do you, what, what is that? It's, if you see a picture of hyssop, it looks like an aloe vera plant. What, do I have a sunburn? What's going on here, David? What, I need some new lotion on my body? What the heck is hyssop? Well, where do we first see hyssop mentioned in the Bible? It's in the account of the Exodus. And what we call the Passover, in which God says, listen, I'm going to come set my people Israel free. And I'm going to do so. I'm going to come in. I'm going to, I'm going to slaughter all the firstborn sons in this land for their sin against me. He says, but if you want to be saved from that, here's what I need you to do. I want you to take a lamb. And I want you to dip a, take a hyssop branch. And I want you to dip it in the blood of the lamb. And I want you to swipe it over your doors. So that when the angel of death comes into the land of Egypt, he will pass over you and your family and that you'll be welcome into relationship with me. And so when David says, purge me with hyssop, what is he saying? He is saying, cleanse me with the hyssop is to say, cleanse me with the blood of the sacrifice. Cleanse me with the blood of the lamb. And what that means is he's saying, I need the cleansing that comes with a deep and desperate cost. Forgive me and regard me as clean because you have poured over me the blood, the sacrifice, the thing that took what my sins deserved. Now we look at that and we say, ew, animal sacrifice? Gross. Yeah, it is gross. Because my sin is gross. This is how bad what our sins really deserve. Shed blood. It deserves death. It deserves something vile to be done to us. 
And it's acknowledging that our sin comes with enormous, enormous cost. No self-reform project can touch this cost. And the question is, who will pay the cost? You, the sinner, or the sacrifice? The one who will, who will sacrifice? Sin is adultery against God. If you commit adultery against your spouse, there is an offense there, isn't there? Someone has to bear the pain of that sin. And the question is this, will the spouse who has been cheated on make the offending spouse pay for it by doing what? Sending them away, ending the marriage, cussing them out, cutting them off. Then the offending spouse is making the cheating spouse pay for their sins. Or what can the offended spouse do? They can say, come home. I will bear the cost. I will take the pain. I will not take a pound of flesh. I will be the one to cry. I will grieve. I will not send you away. I will bear the full weight of your betrayal in my life. And that is exactly what the gospel is about. God says, listen, no mere lamb, no mere lamb is going to cut it. You need a perfect lamb, and that's what Jesus does. He comes to bear the cost of your sin and your adultery and your betrayal. He says, God says, I will bear the cost. Your sin deserves death, so I will take your death. Your sin deserves punishment, so I will take your punishment. Your sin deserves relational separation, so I will be separated from my son so that you can never and have to never be separated from me. That your adultery that should make everyone in town look at you and say, there goes the whore. That that sin will be put upon Jesus so that everybody looks at him and says, there's the adulterous one. I will bear the weight and the pain of their shame. How do we get forgiveness? How do we get mercy? How do we get a safe reception home? It's through the shed blood of the lamb known as Jesus Christ. And by his blood, you are welcome home. This is how you get forgiveness. Have you found mercy? Your sin may be as great as David's and perhaps even greater, but however great it is, your God is wonderfully merciful. He has proved it on the cross. Who does God welcome home? Well, here's what do we see in this passage. Adulterers, murderers, liars, those who once concealed their sin and no longer conceal it. The lazy, the angry, and for me, this, this summer, I discovered God welcomes monsters. When I came back from my sabbatical, I was sharing with Andy in kind of a debrief, and I was sharing about this particular interaction with my counselor and saying about what I was particularly realizing about my character was me having to face the monster that is, has the name Andrew. And Andy looked at me and said, so what does it feel like to know that God loves that monster? Do you understand that that's what God's mercy is? It's not God loves the, when you used to be a monster and now you've done the self-reform project and so you came home. He loves the monster. And he's calling you home where he's going to wash you clean and make you new. Would you like that? These next two weeks we're saying, if you want to follow, have a relationship with God, you've got to repent and believe. Repent of all the things you've trusted in. Repent of your self-reformation projects. Repent of your relational betrayal and treachery against God. Have you done that? Perhaps you haven't because you haven't seen the monstrosity of your sin. Perhaps you haven't done that because you're still trusting in your self-reform project. 
Perhaps you haven't done that because the God that others have presented to you is the God who is angry at you and won't let you come home until you clean yourself up. But the true God is the God who loves monsters. For others of you, you have repented and you have believed and you have trusted, but the life of the believer is to wake up every day and repent. Repent. Martin Luther said the first of the 95 theses at the Reformation, he says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire lives, life of believers should be repentance. Every, you know how many times you should walk an aisle? Every day. Every day. And so would you join me in repenting today? Maybe for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time. There will be a prayer up here. I know. This is an altar call. But stay in your seat. We're Presbyterians. <laughs> You'll scare the rest of us. I, I, that's, that's joking, but I, I, I'm, I'm not joking. Uh, in the sense of, you can come forward if you want. Or you can come meet with me. Understand this. What, 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 whenever God convicts me of my sin, it makes me a better pastor. Whenever I realize that there's a deep monster living inside of me, it makes me more welcoming to other monsters. I hope you receive that often here. Let's pray together. Will you pray out loud with me as a confession before the Lord of prayer of repentance? Yes, all of us together. I'll begin. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner, and I have rejected your love of me. I have rejected your lordship over me. Please forgive me. Father, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against others. I have committed adultery against you. Please forgive me. Father, I have thought my sins so small that I have believed I could clean myself up. Please forgive me. I plead the work of Jesus alone to cover my sin, to give me his record of righteousness, and to usher me into your presence. Now, Father, restore to me the joy of salvation, joy that I'm clean in your sight, Joy that I desire to please you. Joy that you are with me forever. Amen.